Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Hey, uh, so a couple weeks ago, your brain-dead pastor forgot something that we wanted to acknowledge. Um, Last January, uh, I began to pray. Don't go anywhere, by the way. Uh, I began to pray, uh, literally, and now I'd been here eight years at that point. God, I need your help. (laughs) And not that I hadn't prayed that before, but God, I need some help. Um, And what's funny about that is, Four months later, we end up uh, meeting, or actually two months later, we end up having Chris come in to lead worship. Four months, <laughs> Four months later, we hired him as our worship pastor, and so Chris has been here a year, and we wanted to say thank you. I appreciate you. Um, love you, buddy. May I go now? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can go. Sorry. <laughs> it's like the, the thing of it. But, uh, you know, I, I think... Number one, as we're jumping into this idea of, of what it means to be uh, people who pray healing prayers, right? We're going to jump into Second Chronicles chapter 7. Now, I believe this, this verse, under, number one, we have to understand the context of what was going on. Solomon had built the temple. He is now dedicating the temple to the Lord. He's sacrificed the, 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 the sacrifices in the previous chapter to honor the Lord and, and, and to cover a couple of those things. And then there's a point in time where if you were to follow along with me in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 11, it says, when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, Right? So the Lord speaks to Solomon and he says, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, and then we're going to focus on this verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... Will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land? So I want to kind of unpack that for us to understand in reality what's going on, all right? First and foremost, right now, we are in a time where Satan is working overtime to devour, to destroy, to kill, to go about and create a devastation across the land. And in reality, what we see is it says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, I want us to understand that there is a repercussions as a result of the church walking in sin, right? I believe first and foremost individually, we as the body of Christ or we as individual believers, there are going to be repercussions in our lives when we walk in a way of sin, when we allow sin that so easily entangles us to be the very thing that sits on the throne of our heart. And when we allow that sin to sit on the throne of our heart, then what God says is, based upon sin, I'm going to shut off the heavens. In other words, you're not going to receive the blessing. You're not going to receive the nutrients. You're not going to receive my, uh, my commitment to you to see you succeed in life when you continue to walk in sin. Sin is just disobedience, right? Anything I'm disobedient in my life is sin. Anything that I stand up against the word of God in is sin. And so the Lord says, listen, when when the rains are shut off, when the blessing being poured out upon the earth is shut off, there is a reason why it's shut off, and it's as a result of sin. And so one of the things that we wanted to do as we jump in today is really we want to wrestle with now how this plays out 
in my life? How does this play out in the life of our church? How does this play out in the church around the world or around the nation around the world? And then also, how does this play out in our nation? See, we've been watching a breakdown in our country, and I don't believe that it's just in the last couple years. I think COVID just exasperated things. We have a massive breakdown in our country. We see a country that is more bent on destruction and violence. We see a country that is racked in sin, that says sin is better than obedience. We see a country that says, listen, we care for kids when they face certain issues and struggles, but we don't care for kids prior to their birth. We see a number of problems that are played out, and all of this, please hear me out, is not a political ploy. This is to stand on the truth of God's word. We have seen the hatred of some towards people of race, which is completely unbiblical, unchristlike, and uncalled for, because God made all of us in his image, regardless of what color or background you have. We have also seen the abuse of many by overlooking sexual assaults and complaints and recently, honestly, based upon what we just released as, as a statement of a, of a church that is aligned with the Southern Baptist Convention, we have overlooked, or the Southern Baptist Convention has overlooked, those who have made complaints against individuals within Southern Baptist churches. And listen, now as a result also, we have seen the pain and heartache of kids being killed in schools. And it continues to go on. And the reality is, as much as I would like to say that laws are the very thing that would help this, what I want us to understand is I believe the only thing that makes this worthy is a relationship with Jesus Christ. The only thing that changes the lives of a racist bigot is Jesus Christ. The only thing that changes the life of a person who is filled with hate and destruction and murdering violence is Jesus Christ. And we can sit back and we can say, we've got to do what we've got to do, but I want us to understand what we're beginning to see. I believe wholeheartedly, if you go in and read Romans chapter 1, and I believe what we see in Second Chronicles here is that when a nation and when God's people begin to step back and we begin to allow the things of Satan to kind of creep in and overwhelm and kind of rise to the top and become, on, become the, the thing that sits on the throne, then we begin to miss out on the blessings of God because God has been, I'm going to take my hand off of it. And we can look at that from a national perspective, but I want us to look at it from a church perspective, an individual perspective, first and foremost. I believe that revival always starts individually. You know, we always say we want to see revival break out across our land, but individually it has to start, number one, at home. Number two, then it's got to start in the local church. Then number three, it spreads nationally and globally. So 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is for us to understand because the Lord, listen, Solomon has dedicated this temple. He's provided the sacrifices. He comes to this point where he, he's done everything in his mind that he can do. And then the Lord says, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifices. It's important for us to know this. That in the New Testament, you and I are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the very temple that in Romans chapter 12 then says that offer your bodies as living, anybody want to know? 
sacrifice is holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So now today in our own lives, we have to begin to understand that we are the temple with which the Holy Spirit dwells. We are the temple that he's talking about. So we can see this from the perspective. Second Chronicles lays this out. But then there are issues that are arising. Church growth statistician, a guy named George Barna, if you know anything about him, found that prayer was the foundational ministry of rapidly growing churches in America. And he wrote this, a direct quote, the call to prayer in these churches was the battle cry of the congregation. It rallied the troops. These people understood the power of prayer and they actively and consistently included prayer in their services, in their events, in their meetings, and in their personal ministries and lives. I want us to understand as a church that the battle cry within the church really needs to be the thing that rallies the people around is an attitude of prayer. That we pray over everything. Because prayer is the very thing that we need in order to accomplish great things. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says, be joyful always, pray continually. But I want us to see this. And if you remember anything else, I want you to remember this. That prayer is the work of man seeking the power of the Lord to work in supernatural ways that only God can do. Prayer is the work of man seeking the power of the Lord to work in supernatural ways that only God can do. And here's what's crazy about it. Prayer, I believe, is the most untapped, unused, unpracticed exercise of believers in the American church. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. It's important for us to play these things out and to understand exactly what's going on because Jesus, when he lays that out, he's given us a plan to succeed, a plan to experience the blessings of the Lord. Listen, he says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. These are the very people of God, the nation of Israel. And he says, as a result, I'm going to cause drought and famine and plagues to come across when you turn from me, when you don't walk in obedience, when you continue to go down a way that says, I don't need your help, God, I got it all on my own. And so what I want us to see is this. When we talk about this battle cry mentality, prayer is the work of man. Do you get what I say when I say that? It is the work that we can do to pray and to seek God consistently so that, listen, that the power of the Lord, to, to, to literally seek and call out for the power of the Lord to work in supernatural ways. When we look at the United States or we look around the world and we look at violence, we can look at racism, we can look at all kinds of different problems and struggles. And we can begin to become overwhelmed by the very nature of those things and think we have no hope. When the reality is we have all hope. In a nation that has got drought and pestilence, in a nation that has no rain and plagues, the only hope we have is to pry, cry out and to pray to Jesus because he's the one who does the work. Yeah, I'd planned this long before everything kind of began to happen, but I want us to understand that prayer is the beginning of God's supernatural work in the situations and people around us. 
That's literally what he lays out. The people that pray desperately will be the ones that experience a move of God. Not because of themselves, but because of the power of God. And so here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to ask this question. When we think about this idea of healing prayers, prayers that are going to heal us individually, but prayers that are going to heal our church and heal the nation and heal the land around us. When I think about this idea, this battle cry of praying, I want to ask this question. How do we see prayers of healing played out in my life? And I want to unpack that just based on verse 14. Number one, I believe, is this. We have to be or we must be God's children first. In other words, we follow him regardless of the cost. So here's what he says. If my what? My people. There's a possessive statement there. It doesn't mean all people Everybody's going to experience this drought, this lack of rain, this, 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 this plague that's going to come across the world. But he says, listen, if my people, which is the possessive state, those people who are following me, those people who are part of the body of Christ, those people who have admitted their faults, their sins, their, their need for Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, admitting their sins, then if my people, the possessive statement, if my people... It's this idea of God owning us. The Bible says very clearly that you are not your own. You were bought at a price. So this idea, God is saying, is it's not all people. But if my people, if the church prays with fervency and passion, if the church seeks God personally and corporately, my people, this idea of possession... So my question first and foremost is this, if you want to experience healing prayer in your life, are you God's? Have you given your life to Jesus? Does he own you? Is he king or or, or the one who is on the throne of your heart or is something else on the throne of your heart? It may be addiction, it may be sexuality, it may be all of these things that play out. What is it that's on the throne of your heart? If my people is what he's laying out. That's number one. So how do I see or hear and experience healing prayers or prayers of healing? I have to know that I have to be God's first. Number two, I must have a humble heart. Jesus, or or Paul says it this way, that in humility, Christ considered others better than himself. Humility is the very thing that oftentimes we don't like to hear about, right? Right? Like if somebody was like, you need to humble yourself, you're going to be like, bro, I'm going to, we're going to, no. (laughs) Right? Like nobody likes to hear you need to be more humble. Because in reality, when somebody says you need to be more humble, it's in reality saying, well, you got pride. You're arrogant. But listen to what Jesus says or what, what the Lord says. If my people who are called by my name will what? humble themselves. Here's what happens with humility. Humility is the beginning point of prayer. 
Humility is realizing or recognizing that you can't do it on your own. That in reality, you have no power or authority to change anybody's life. You have no power or ability to take on the battles that you face with Satan and his workers that are going on around us. If you don't look at what's going on in our world and you don't begin to understand that a majority or in reality, all of what's taking place is a spiritual battle with which you have no control over, then you're going to look and go, we're, we're, we're doomed. We're, we're in trouble. We're destroyed. We don't have a chance. But listen to what God says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, in other words, admit your inability, admit your weaknesses, admit your flaws, admit your struggles, humility creates an attitude of brokenness and readiness for God. Humility is acknowledging our weakness and God's strength. And I want you to think about this. Prayer is not a gift. Prayer is a practice. Prayer is an exercise and a spiritual discipline that has to be used daily, day in and day out in order to understand exactly who I am and the, the reality that I have no power or authority other than the power and authority that Jesus gives me. Those who have powerful prayer lives have them because they've made an effort to connect with God. Max Lucado says it this way. Our prayers may be awkward. Our attempts may be feeble. But since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. I want us to get that through because when we're humble in our approach or attitude to prayer, then what we begin to see is this. That it's not about the words you say. It's about the power of the one the words you're speaking to has. God is all powerful. God is all knowing. Do you think he knows your prayers before you pray him? Yep. But listen to me. The humility acknowledges my weakness, my inability my lack of strength and power to do anything, and it acknowledges all of God's ability, all of God's strength, all of God's power, and his omniscience to know everything and all things. A humble heart comes and says, God, you know all things. I know nothing, but I'm seeking out your power, your authority, and your ability. See, prayer doesn't release the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has already been released. Prayer releases the power of the Holy Spirit in us. That's why in Romans chapter 8, it says this, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through words or wisdom groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So listen, when somebody says, I don't know what to pray, that's okay. Because the Spirit is groaning for you. But listen, you don't have the Spirit if you're not part of God's people. If you're not a child of God, you do not have the Holy Spirit in you. I believe the Holy Spirit's probably standing at your door knocking, calling you to truth, calling you to obedience, calling you to humbly admit your brokenness and your need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. But some may be standing back going, I don't need to answer that door, but I'm going to pray. But listen to me, and I think it's important for us to understand this. I don't believe, I believe God hears the prayers of people. I don't believe God's going to answer your prayers until you've aligned your heart with his. We must have a humble heart. 
And not just that, we have to have an attitude of repentance. Listen to what he says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So here's this idea. In humility, I begin to seek out God. I begin to pray, right? And I seek his face and then turn from their wicked ways. Here's the reality of what's going on, right? Solomon has dedicated this temple, but yet the people of Israel walk in disobedience, in sinful ways. And what the Bible is telling us is that when you walk in the sinful ways, you repent, and guess what happens? God hears. You walk in the sinful ways, and you say, I'm not going to put up with it. I don't care. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to turn from my disobedience. And what we're saying is, fine, guess what? The rain's cut off, and the plagues begin. Repentance is a turning away from the sins, going the complete opposite direction, and saying, Lord, I'm crying out and calling out to you. Repentance is this idea, listen, that we have to understand or create or allow God to sit on the throne of our lives instead of allowing our preferences, our desires, and sins to sit on the throne of our lives. See, Satan does not want you and I to become people of prayer. Because when you become a person of prayer, then God through prayer begins to change your heart. God through prayer begins to change your mind and your soul and your spirit because he wants us to align ourselves with his word. John Bunyan, a guy who wrote this book called Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? A couple of you have, all right? John Bunyan said this at one point, Pray, prayer, sorry, prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. If you're a prayerless person, let me ask this question. Is it because of sin? A lack of humility, a lack of brokenness, and a lack of willingness to deal with the sin in your life. And if that is, then this prayer that we're talking about right here, this verse right here, is the very thing that God's calling us to. To humble ourselves, to pray, to seek his face, and to turn from our wicked ways. The church cannot be in bed with worldly ideologies and worldly opinions. The church is called out to be separate from, independent from, holy. Every time disobedience arises in the church or within the people of God, God brings upon discipline and punishment. Rightfully so. So it's important for us to understand in order to see healing prayers that we have to be God's first, that we have to have a humble heart and seek his face and pray and turn from our wicked ways. But listen, here's the good news. Here's the great news through all this. When we do our part in that, like seeking God, when we talk about this from the beginning, that prayer is the work of man. It is the work of man seeking God and God's will and God's desires and God's hopes for the future. But listen how God works. Here's the awesome thing about this. So he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Now here's this key word that's a connection word called then. It's an if-then clause, right? Parents know if-then clauses, right? If you clean your room, I will take you out for ice cream. If you do your chores, then you will receive your allowance. If you show up at work, then you will get a paycheck. 
right? It's called an if-then clause. But the Lord lays this out in this way. If, then. If my people do these things, then, and listen to what he says. Number one, God will hear us. I believe that God hears the prayers of a righteous person. That's why James lays out and says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That when we are righteous, when we are right in God's eyes, when we have repented of our sins, then we are deemed or considered righteous. And as a result, God hears our prayers. So listen, God works through the humility and the brokenness and the repentance of his people so that he hears our prayers. Now, let me be clear on this because some of you are going, wait, you're saying he doesn't hear? No, I believe he hears. He doesn't answer. Some of you have been praying things for years and the reason you're praying those things is because you have that deep down desire, but in reality, you're not willing to walk in the ways that the Lord lays out here and saying, I've got to repent of my sins. I have to turn from any and all unrighteousness. And when we walk down that road and we're not willing to let the Lord sit on the throne of our heart, then what he's saying is, fine, I hear you, but I'm not answering. You're not going to receive the rain, but rather you're going to receive the plague. And I believe wholeheartedly that the reason oftentimes the church receives the plague is because we're willing to go so far, but we're not willing to walk in holiness. In other words, we want salvation. We want fire insurance but we're not willing to walk in obedience day in and day out because you're asking me to do something that's absolutely counterproductive or countercultural to what society teaches. But here's the truth. God hears those who are righteous and holy. And listen, he is the one, yes, it is counterproductive to social, cultural norms. But he is the one who answers prayer. He is the one who has all power and all authority. And I believe wholeheartedly that we have to understand this. If prayer is man's work, listen, if prayer is man's work, then what we're seeking is God's power. What we're seeking is God's authority. Keep this in mind that he is over all things. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. All things were created by him and for him, and everything continues to exist as a result of that. So if God hears us, then we have to begin to understand that God is all-knowing, that God is all-powerful, that God is all-omniscient. He's going to have everything under control, and in his timing, and in his way, it's going to play out. But listen, there is a statement, or there's a thing that's going on in our society right now, and it's called spiritual warfare. It's a battle between good and evil. And we all like good and evil because we wouldn't watch all the Marvel movies. We wouldn't look at all of the things like Batman and Superman and fighting the bad things. We wouldn't look at those things if we didn't like good winning over evil. But there are spiritual battles going on around us going on for the hearts and minds of your kids and my kids, going on for the hearts and minds of our societies and our cultures and our local areas. And if you don't see it, I want to wake you up to the reality of what's going on just around in our own neighborhood. 73% broken families, 76% of the households around us within a mile are opioid addicts or have opioid addicts in them. 
addiction at an all-time high. Out-of-wedlock marriages, lack of fathers in the homes, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, seeking desires and, and fulfillment in other things outside of what God created, which was this hole in his heart, in your heart and mind, that's only to be filled by him, but yet we try and fill it with everything else. Sexual desires, pornography, lust, assault, abuse, violence, murder, rage, wrath, hatred, bigotry, racism, all of those things are a result of a spiritual battle of Satan who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And the nature of God, which is good, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving. God is light in him, there's no darkness. God is love. Without God, there is no love to exist. And what some say is love in reality, has to be communicated in a way that says, listen, I love you enough not to continue to allow you to walk in a way that's disobedient to God's authority and God's power. So how does God work? Number one, God hears us. Number two, God will forgive us. Here's this idea. Humble myself in a posture or an attitude of prayer where I humble myself and I place myself under the authority of Jesus Christ and I turn from my wicked ways. That's a repentance. And here's what it says, as a result of humility and seeking God in prayer and repentance, I will forgive you. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, number one. Number two, I will forgive their sin. You want a forgiveness of sin, then you seek the power of the Lord because it's the power of Jesus Christ on the cross that purchased us, that bought us, that redeemed us from the sin nature that we so easily have. That's the, the sins that, that so easily entangle us. So he says, God will forgive us. Listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, and he will purify us from any and all unrighteousness. Leonard Ravenhill, a great pastor, said this, the church, the true church, lives and moves and has its being in prayer. So how does God work? Number one, God will hear us. Number two, God will forgive us. And number three, God will heal our land. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that what he's talking about there is really, in reality, the nation of Israel. Now, this is a diehard, true American patriot, served in the military, loved my country. As a matter of fact, we celebrate Memorial Day, and those who have sacrificed so greatly and who have lost their lives as a result of defending the freedoms of the United States. But I want us to be understanding and very clear that you cannot read Scripture and put the United States of America into it. We read Scripture based upon the truth of God's Word, and we hope and pray that the United States of America would line themselves up with that. But the current way that our culture is going, the current way that our politics and our government allow us to go, and I'm not just talking about this 
current administration, I'm talking about all administrations, is simply to take us away from the truth of Scripture, away from God's Word, away from any sort of ideology that God sits on the throne, that God has a great reason, a great plan, that God has things in store for us that we can never begin to ask or imagine. But listen, when we go down this way, what God is saying is, I will heal their land, is this idea that I will heal the church or I will heal the nation of the people who follow me. And here's the good news about that. That if persecution arises within the government of the United States towards believers and followers of Jesus, that God says it doesn't matter because the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. If it costs you your life, it doesn't matter because the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. That if it costs you everything you have and you lose the very foundation upon which you think that you have earned because of the sacrifices of men and women, it doesn't matter because Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith. See, I believe that there is hope. Hope for the lost, hope for the hurting, hope for the hopeless, hope for the poor, hope for the needy, hope for the sinner, hope for the rich and the outcast, the individuals that everyone else has forgotten about. But this hope, I believe, rests in the faithful prayers of those who follow Christ daily. We want to be the light of the world, a city on a hill, because that's what the church is called to be, because God is light and in him there's no darkness. And I believe that in the church that there should be nothing but light and no darkness. But darkness, when it pervades or it invades the light of the church can be a problem. That's why the call to repentance. Darkness flees when light is around. But when we allow darkness to kind of hang on and prevail in the light of the church, then the light begins to flicker. And when the light begins to flicker, we're not a lighthouse. We're not a city on a hill anymore. We're nothing more than what everybody else is in the world. See, the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. And my call is us, is to this, for us as a church, is that we are called to be a church of prayer. We are called to be on our knees. That's why that first song, the battle belongs to who? So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. The fight we fight is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers, the principalities, and the authorities that are taking place in the spiritual warfare that is going on around us. And if we want to see a a, a city-changing, life-changing lighthouse in the midst of independence, then we have to be a church that prays. And so here's how we're going to do it. We're going to close in prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to begin to pray where we're at. We're going to have the praise team come up. They're going to close us out with some songs, but we're going to spend some time in prayer before that. See, if prayer puts God to work on earth, then by the same token, prayerlessness rules God out of the world's affairs. It prevents him from working. 
If prayer moves God to work in the world's affairs, then prayerlessness excludes God from everything concerning men. And it leaves men on earth, the mere creature of circumstance, at the mercy of blind fate or without help from any kind with God, from God. So Father, we pray and we thank you that there is hope for the future because we know that you are seated at God's right hand and we are seated with you in the heavenly places. You defeated Satan. You defeated his work. You defeated death on the cross. You bought and purchased us from the sin that so easily entangles us. And you have called us to be a righteous and holy people. Help us show others your love, your power, your authority, and your rule on earth. And let us be people who pray. Thank you for the power of prayer that is available. God, let us be the people who work because prayer is the work of man seeking the power of God to do what only you can do, which is to work in supernatural ways. Here's what we're gonna do. In the midst of the praise team leading the song, if you wanna stand and sing, I wanna encourage you to do that. At minimum, I'm gonna encourage you to pray, maybe as a couple at church, if you're here with your spouse, that you would pray together. Maybe in reality, it's a call for you to come forward and to pray, maybe as a couple or as a family, to approach the throne humbly with repentance, acknowledging your sin, seeking the Lord, because he says, listen, when we approach him that way, now or then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sins and I will heal your land.